All right, so tonight we're going to be on evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and again, we'll reiterate the point that these are just pretty much surface studies. They're not in-depth, exhaustive studies, so there could be a whole lot more that we could say. We just don't have time. Um, I mean, you could take a week or two on each one of the topics. So, First, we're going to have Ephesians, if you want to go ahead and start, and then I'll just throw in my two cents there. Yeah, let's just read Ephesians 4 again, uh, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, uh, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And just what I want to point out, um, it's just the, the real focus of why we have fivefold ministry. And it really is to equip the believers to do the work of the ministry. That, that's why. Sure. That, that's the purpose. It's not that we do it, but the body is, is um, equipped, released, and empowered to do it. And um, the other thing I want to point out here for this, for this passage is this, is verse 14. As a result of fivefold ministry, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So not only is it, a, is it equipping, it's actually stability in the Word of God. It's stability for living life, uh, living a balanced life, not being pulled here or there, not being pulled by doctrines that um, is part truth and part false. And so, it, again, it implies the, the importance of being grounded in the house. So I'm going to just start with that. I think, too, a five-fold, having five-fold ministry in, in a house just gives you balance because you get every perspective. And these, again, remember that these were, these were gifts or offices that came out of Christ. So every one of these you can attribute to Christ. I mean, he's labeled by every one of these offices in the Word. So um, it's not, these are not gifts that Holy Spirit gives. These are actual, I guess, characteristics or, or manifestations of the actual personality of Christ. And because um, the Bible says he, gived, he gives out of himself, he gives to the church these gifts. And, and another thing to point out about that scripture where it talks about he put some in the church it, it, didn't, it does not say or didn't say anything about any of these offices being temporary offices. Yeah. He put them all in the church. And so as long as there's a church, yeah. these offices are in the church. Now whether they get recognized or not or whether people want to focus on them, and, and I think that you'll see as we talk about this, if you focus on any one office, you're going to be perverted. And, and perverted is, is a, a screwed up or a disoriented version. Perversion is a messed up version. So anything out of the five-fold office, you're going to have a messed up version of the church. In other words, if you just focus on one, if you, if you don't want to talk about apostle and prophet, and you just want to have a pastor, evangelist, teacher, that's all you talk about, then you're going to have a, a perverted version of what Christ meant for the church to look at. You've got to have all, all of them active uh, in order to be able to be complete. So that's why they're there. 
So the first one we'll start talking about tonight is the evangelist. And um, one of the definitions that Paul put on the notes is uh, one who announces good news. And then I'll let him elaborate on that. And then another one I found is, is also kind of what we talk about, power evangelism. Um, and, and I really hate that there's like a separation there because there really shouldn't be. There should, just should be evangelism, and it should show up and manifest yeah. however it does. But the, one of the definitions I found, it says not only one who declares, but one who brings. So an evangelist is not just someone who declares something. There's someone who outside the church, they bring something with them. The question is, what is the something? And I think scripture points that out, what that something is. But somebody who not only declares, hey, you need to get saved. Hey, do you know what Jesus did for you? But somebody who actually brings something with them. Not only in, in, in word, but also in power and in demonstration. Yeah. So it's kind of like what we call power evangelism, but it's really just a per, an evangelist. In, in my opinion, an evangelist, and I believe it's scriptural, should have manifestations of that power that he declares in his life. You know, in other words, he should bring that to the people outside of the church. And that power... Is a, is a demonstration and manifestation to the unbeliever to bring them to an acknowledgement that, hey, there, there must be a higher power, and this person is telling us who that higher, higher power is. And so. So uh, I, I think Acts 8 gives a great illustration of, of the evangelist. I think, too, that I think the, the thought has a shift that the evangelist is somebody who goes from church to church to church, um, but actually goes into a region, a city, and actually plows the ground in that place, um, not just a guy who goes in, blows up, and blows up, but actually spends time in that. But I want to just give a few scriptures to point out about the work of the evangelist. Number one, uh, as Lee was saying, they operate in signs and wonders, Acts chapter 8, verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what he was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. From the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So we see that, like Lee was saying, evangelism, uh, evangelism movement empire. I think of Rod Harbunke. I mean, 42 million saved in 10 years. That doesn't count the other 25 years he was in Africa and the number of people that were saved in those 25 plus years and how that so many people give witness to the gospel by the blind being healed, the deaf being healed, the lame walking, the demon possessed being set free. Uh, and so I think Ron Herbunke is a, is a perfect example of a modern-day evangelist who has spent his life living um, in, in the States but focusing on one place, Nigeria, and seeing that country saved. Um, and he, said, he even said that with uh, his um, predecessor, Daniel Kalinda. He has now put up the ministry, and they now just have me saved and delivered and healed is what they saw. So they operate in signs and wonders. But number two about the evangelist, they also preach the kingdom of God. That's their message. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So, again, the same thought. The message is the kingdom of God. It's not grace. It's not salvation. The message is the kingdom. By the way, when you understand when we say that, it's not that grace isn't important or salvation is not important. Salvation is the doorway into the kingdom. And grace is how you operate in the kingdom. But the message is the kingdom of God, not you must be born again or you need God's grace. The message is the ruling reign of God in the earth. 
And it, it, it's a culmination of all of it, you know, and, and that's the, it's like when you're going to evangelize, I mean, all the other offices actually um, are, are of no importance without somebody getting saved, you know. So, I mean, I understand, and, and this is what I love about all these offices, and this is why I think that they don't really exist, is because people don't know how to coexist with other people who are operating from a different office. In other words, it's not that we, we want to throw, even when we talk about pastors, we're not throwing stones or anything at anybody. It's just you've got to understand the place and significance of them all in order to get what Christ left in the church. And so an evangelist is always going to be soul-minded. You know, they're, they're going to be the one that wants to go and, and the, the focus is on being, uh, sharing the news, the good news. And that is salvation and that is grace and that is, this is what salvation and grace has opened up to you now. It's the kingdom, you know, an operational structure for you to live in. And, and so the evangelist is always going to have that focus. And uh, the problem is a lot of times pastors don't know how to coexist with that because you get all these five-fold people in a big meeting and there are going to be five different ways of looking at things. Yeah. And people don't know how to not take that as an offense. When you say the most important thing is this and, the, and somebody in a different office is going to say, well, I don't know, to me, the most important thing is this. And it's almost like people can't deal with that. Because, you know, we've been cloned that we all got to think alike to accept each other. And that's ridiculous. You know, we, we want to celebrate what everybody brings to the table. So an evangelist is going to be, they're going to be that focused. They're going to be, um, but, but what we see in Scripture is the evangelist had those signs and wonders followed them when they would, into a place. Sometimes the signs and wonders would happen first and then they would minister. Sometimes they would start to preach and then signs and wonders would follow. It, it, it's, and this is what I love to tell people who are evangelistic minded. When you go out, just do whatever Holy Spirit directs you to do. Otherwise, you're just following a formula yeah. and, and you, you, you have adopted really another religious mindset for it's got to be this way. No, it doesn't. God does what God chooses to do, and he may do it different every single time depending on where you go, how you go. So, like, if you like to tell people about Jesus, then that's okay. If you like to pray for, uh, um, if you like to find people with braces on and pray for them first, that's okay. You know, it's going to express itself however ex it expresses itself through you. I, I don't discourage anybody from doing anything when it comes to sincere operation for the Lord. Because even if their theology is off, if they're doing it from relationship, we can deal with the theological issue. You know, it's like Paul said, if one eats meat and one eats vegetables and one don't eat vegetables because he thinks it's wrong to eat meat, don't condemn him. Even though theologically, you can eat meat now. Praise Jesus. It's the same. It's the same way when people evangelize. When you have you have a room full of evangelists, they're not going to evangelize the same way. Yeah. You know, you 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 can look at people and say, "I want to I want to model after that guy. I want to pursue what he has." But don't clone yourself.
Take what he has, take what she has, model after them, but let yourself come through. He chose you, he made you, you, for a reason. He didn't make 25,000 tides. He made you. Yeah. So let, let it surface however it surfaces through you. Yeah. Just to add on his point about the need, uh, I won't read this, but Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. After, after um, people have been saved, Philip has the apostles come down from Jerusalem so they can be baptized and saved and established. And so it shows the need that, that evangelists understand the points that are working with other five-four ministries. You know, Philip didn't get prideful and say, okay, let me do this myself. Let me lay hands on you. Let me baptize you. Now let's call Jerusalem. Let's get the order down here, the apostles. Let them start a new work. So when, when Philip got the city saved, he brought the apostles down so he can move on to the next place. Really amazing. And the other thing I want to bring out too about Philip is this. Um, you know, Philip is the only one in Scripture that has ever been recorded as being actually transported from one city to the next. And here's why I'm bringing it up. There's this thought in the church that says, if I'm not an apostle or prophet, I'm not valuable. I'm less than if I'm a pastor or a teacher or evangelist. You know, I find it ironic that Philip is the only one in Scripture as an evangelist who was actually transported from one city to the next. And I just think we have to shift our mind that says, you know, I'm less than. Because I, I know people who've told me, I feel less than because I don't have that title. Well, your title, doesn't val- your title does not validate you. Father validates you, not your title. And in Acts 8, 14 through 17, like he's talking about, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Yeah. So he didn't try to clone his daughters. Their, their gifting and their, their manifestation of their relationship with the Lord took on its own manifestation. But he taught them, evidently, it's okay to be who you are in God. Because it doesn't say they evangelize. It doesn't label them as evangelists. And also, as everybody's there now, he's pulling these apostles and all in to help with the church. Other prophets begin to come to his house. So him being the evangelist and settling in with who he is, it, it attracted the other offices. Yeah. And that's why it's important that you are who you are. Because if you're trying to be somebody that you're not, it, you're going to repel people, not draw them in. And that's why you, you can't really, you just have to be comfortable with who you are. And so I think it's, it's awesome as a family to think about if I assume my role and I do what I was created to do, it will, it will help create an environment in my home where others are free to be who they're supposed to be. I mean, how many times do you see a pastor say, this is my son, he's going to pastor the church when I step down from the time he's a little boy? Well, maybe that's true, but I promise you, if you speak that, then the boy will be a pastor, and he may not have a pastoral bone in his body. So now you've kind of handicapped his ability to listen to the Lord for himself and watch as the years go and see who he is. And I was impressed by that when I read it. I was like, wow, Philip's an evangelist, so you know how he feels about evangelism. But his four daughters prophesied. Now, it doesn't say they're prophets, but he wasn't saying, oh, these are my four evangelist daughters. Come on, let's evangelize. You know, which you use prophecy and evangelism. So, I mean, maybe they, I don't know, but it didn't call them evangelists. I thought that was pretty awesome. He wasn't trying to create clones. He was just trying to be himself. Um, 
No, you hit, you hit all that. All right. We'll go to the next one. All right, so pastor, uh, really unique. The word pastor is used one time in the Bible. It's interesting because it's actually translated 13 other times as shepherd. So if you really want to understand the pastor, you really need to understand the job of a shepherd. Um, and so one of the very first scriptures where I want to hit on is, is Matthew 9. Um, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then that was Matthew 9 and then Mark 6. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And I think what's the, one of the important thoughts here is this, is that uh, a shepherd cannot do his job apart from the people. You know. Um, I think in that verse, um, also in Jeremiah seventeen sixteen, the words used in the Old Testament, and it means to shepherd, to feed, to herd, and to keep. And I think the focus is always on the people. And because in Matthew 9, this is something I want to show. And, and understand, we're not knocking this. It's just this is the prevalent model that we, we deal with. I mean, you guys would have to say that in North American churches, the pastor or the teacher is the highest position a person could be in. I mean, that is the focus of the church. And in, I know very few. Very few, even charismatic and Pentecostal churches where the apostle is ever mentioned or the prophet is ever mentioned. Now, they're open to prophecy, but the office of a prophet is not open. And um, in Matthew 9, 36, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. And this is the heart of the pastor, seeing the people. So he, he gives you the definition of pastor right there. Seeing the people. This is the problem. We talked about perversion. This is the problem when, when the main focus is a pastoral focus. Because he is by very nature, or she is, be a she, by very nature about the people. All right? That's God's gift. It's a gift. But when it is the center of attention, the house becomes self-centered. Everything about the church is about appeasing the people. All of our programs, all of our finances, all of our, everything that we do is about the people in the church. And John Maxwell said it best, I believe, that the church is the only organization on the face of the planet that does not exist for the benefit of its members. The church exists for the equipping and the training of the people who have been saved, come into the kingdom, and need to know how to operate in the kingdom so that they can do the work of the ministry. It is not supposed to be about us collectively coming together, building facilities, building programs that only meet our needs. And how many of you say we go to church there because it meets our needs? It provides for our needs. And, and a pastor's there to do that, but that can't be the only focus or the main focus even. The main focus has to be what is God wanting to do in this region. It is from heaven into earth what is Father wanting to do. You know, we say we've laid our life down. We've been crucified with Christ. 
But yet, if we go to a church that doesn't meet every one of our needs, we leave. Because in sincerity, it is about us. The focus is about us. And that's why, to me, it's like a commercialized consumer mentality when you pick a church based on how they're going to meet your need. Because to me, you consult your Father, you pray, you let Holy Spirit guide you, and you go to where Holy Spirit and Father tell you to go. Because they know you better than you know you. They know what you need better than you know what you need. And they know where you need to be. And they know which house needs you. See, it's a mentality of, how does Freedom Point need me? And when you set a pastor up as the main, main focus of the whole church, then the focus is going to only be on the people. I mean, think about it, guys. We have, how many needs does this community have? I'm talking about serious needs. And how many churches are really putting the majority of their financial resources and, and physical resources toward those needs? And then how many, how much finances and physical resources are going toward the church's needs? And then that tells you everything you need to know. I mean, you think about, name, name uh, injustice in this community. Anything you can think of. I don't have basketball go. <laughs> I'm talking about a real injustice. Like pe people's lives are in balance over these injustices. I mean, what can you think of? How about hunger? You think there's any hungry people in this community? All right, how about homelessness? Are there any homeless people in this community? How about unwed mothers who have no place to go, who have no pre-neonatal care, who have, who have no uh, medical support because they have no insurance? Does that exist here? Uh, addiction, does that exist here? Addiction counseling, helping, helping uh, families who are in that, that, does that exist here? I mean, anything you can think of, it exists here. Now, how many churches are putting... An, a huge amount of resources to cure that or to, or to combat those injustices in this community. I mean, we see a few food programs, but like at Bradford, we had hardly no money allocated from, from the church for it. I mean, as far as our overall budget. And it, it did good, but it was like putting a Band-Aid on a sliced open cut where you needed stitches. So it just wasn't the focus. Missions wasn't, wasn't focused. It was an internal focus created by that pastoral model. And, and that's not a cut on pastors. Please don't misunderstand what we're saying because without them, you won't have a church because the church will leave. <laughs> you know? But you can't make the people the main focus. God has to be the main focus. You know, in worship, if people are the main focus then people will get upset if the worship don't go exactly right or if they miss a key or if, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Um, at six, want to just look at this. Um, at six, one. Now at this time, one of the, one of the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenist Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily storing of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and the wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we would devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, the famous, for me, it was the famous digging passage from my church. For other churches, it might be the famous elder passage. But I believe this text is a picture of true pastoral ministry. And I think the shift has occurred that true pastoral ministry's purpose is not in preaching the word. True pastoral ministry is to the people. Now, let's tie this in with this. 1 Corinthians 12. And God has appointed first in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. So you notice he skips evangelists and pastors. And we know the work of the evangelists is outside the church. But we, I, just my opinion is this. And I'll talk to you about the church today, and we're kind of just working this out with, between us. I believe the true ministry of the pastor is outside the church, not in the church. And yet we had this thought that every Sunday he's in the pulpit preaching a sermon while people are being neglected. I think that's why you find that word pastor used once as pastor and 13 as a shepherd, because a shepherd was in the field with the sheep. You never find a shepherd apart from a sheep. He's always with the sheep. So I think the shift has come, even in this house, who is that pastor for this house? That thoughtful pastor who will be that person, because it's not Lee, he knows it, and I know it, and I'm not it. But who is that person that God will raise up in this house to be a pastor, a true faithful pastor, to oversee the needs of the people? To me, one of the aspects of what Paul's talking about when you say outside the church is, you know, this is kind of how we've relegated every office that Christ put in the church. What he means in the church, he's not talking about a building. And I think that that's where we get it skewed. He said he put these offices in the church. Now, the church assembles, and I understand that we teach and we cast vision and all that. But, like, to me, a, a true pastoral model is in the lives of the people. Now, where's that happening at? Where's your life really happening at? At home, right? It's not really happening here. You're not disciplining children here. You're not having marriage conflict in here. You're not having problems on the job in here tonight. Those are happening outside the church. And that's where the heart of the pastor, to me, comes forth. It's like, how can, you know, they'll, a, a pastor will call, he'll or she will be thinking about the people, and they'll be checking up on people, and they'll be, uh, you just see it, you just see it. They can't help it. It's who they are. They're constantly wanting to, to be involved and interject themselves, not so that they can feel proud because they have true concern. And it's not that the others don't have true concern. It's just they're operating as who they are, you know. And um, to me, that's, that's the pricelessness of a pastor. You've got to have a pastor. Yeah. You've got to have people who are pastoral. And, and underneath a pastor, you will have people that, that are attracted to that pastoral office because they themselves have that same call. They have maybe, maybe they, they don't have the office but they have these gifts, gifts of exhortation, gifts of, of even administration, gifts of, of um, you know, just like I think about this lady at Bradford who used to write, handwrite cards. She would write 10 or 15 cards a week and mail them out to the people that she noticed that was missing. That's pastoral. 
And you say, well, we should all do that. We, we, maybe we should all do that. But I, I just, I'm not going to do that. Not because I don't want to, but I just forget. I don't even know who, sometimes I have to ask Angela who was here. And that's the truth. It's not that I'm not, I'm not wanting to love on people. I may have even spoken to you. And then I'll say, was they there Sunday? Yeah, they were there. I mean, you talked to them when they walked in. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, they said this. And I'll remember it then. But it's, it's just not, and I'm not, I just can't make myself be somebody I'm not. But so without the pastor, you lose that. Yeah. And people don't feel like they're valuable. And that's not, that's not right. So we got to have them. Who, who is that? And, um, and like Paul said, you know, I, I always grew up thinking that a pastor has to fill the pulpit. Maybe they don't. I don't know. If they have the ability to stand behind a pulpit and minister, if they have that anointing and that ability, then yeah. But they may not. Yeah, that's they may not have that point. ability. That's a good point. And, and so we say, okay, now you can't operate in the office of a pastor because you can't fill the pulpit. I mean, how ridiculous is that? When that's not the primary call of a pastor anyway. Mm-hmm. You see, it's kind of like we've got to shift the way we see everything. First of all, I mean, where are people doing life? They're doing life outside the church. The evangelist knows that. <laughs> you know, and we don't say you, you can't be an evangelist because you, you're not internal focused. You know, I mean, they'll be internally focused. The pastor's going to hug next, shake hands, greet people. How you doing? Be, be all up in your business. Because that's who they are. Yeah. Um, let me give you one. I won't read this for time's sake. Great, it's a great necessity. Uh, Long scripture, just write this down. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. But this is a, a rebuke. Uh, that God rebuked the uh, shepherds in Israel. And there's five reasons why he rebuked them. Uh, number one, he rebuked them because they fed themselves and not the flock. He rebuked them because they did not strengthen the sick. He rebuked them because they did not bound, bound up those who, were, uh, those who needed healing. Um, and he, he rebuked them because they did not go look for the lost or scattered sheep. I mean, when I see that in people, when I see those who are looking for the lost people who are scattered or those who are broken and compassion, man, there's a pastor right there. Yep. You know, when I, these four or five things, I can look at people's lives and say, pastor, pastor, why? Because you just see it. Because they exemplify those things of looking for those who have been left out, the unwanted, the, uh, those who have been cast away. Um, and you can tell when you don't have a pastor in the house because nobody in the house is focused on people. Yeah, and honestly, I think we're missing that because I mean I, I don't know how well we do it. That He's, he he rebuked them because they didn't bring back the scattered, or they didn't look for the lost sheep. So you know, I mean, to me, I see, and I'm gonna tell you, if you don't have a past a pastor. If you don't have a, somebody in that office, the evangelist, if you get one, he'll leave or she'll leave. Mm-hmm. Because this is why. The evangelist will get tired of seeing no benefit and no true lasting fruit from their work. They'll be out in the field. They'll be out bringing in the harvest. And they'll be expecting the pastor and, he'll, and everybody else to take care of the harvest. And, but he'll come back and, and they'll be gone. And he'll be like, what do you mean they're gone? Did you go look for them? No. Eventually, he or she will get frustrated and go to a church where there is a pastor because they'll want to know if, 
if I go out, then I'm going to have some lasting fruit from my work. So really, you're going to kill two birds with one stone if you don't have one or the other. And if you don't have an evangelist, a pastor will be frustrated because there doesn't seem to be any new salvations. There doesn't seem to be anybody coming in. You see how we, every office complements the other office. And without one, you're going to be lacking. Without an apostle, you're not going to have a, a, a focus on, on the heavenly model, on bringing heaven and earth, signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. And I'm not saying that some of these can't like overlap, you know, because you get an apostle around a true pastor and he's going to start thinking some pastoral. You get a, a, a pastor around an evangelist and a pastor might start thinking a little bit like an evangelist. That's the way it's supposed to be. I promise you in your family you have this kind of systematic thinking that your whole family does, even though you may bring a crazy side to it or a more adamant, constricted side to it, but you all have, and that's the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. We have one, one systematic, pretty much, vision, and then everybody brings their piece to it, but it's one goal. Do you want to hit this one? We've got six minutes left. Teacher? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, a teacher, um, they teach truth on the Word of God by a revelation of the Holy Spirit. They have a strong heart, understanding, and love for the Word of God. They're extremely careful to rightly divide the Word of God. Very important. They rightly divide the Word of God. Jesus, Matthew 13, when he had come into his own country, he taught them in the synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So a teacher is one who can take a topic and explain it and make it known what's being talked about. So a true teacher can take difficult subjects in the Bible and make them digestible to you. And that's another office of a teacher is that when, when there seems to be a lack between, like say what an apostle or prophet is saying and the, and, and the teacher can sense that there might be some misunderstanding, a teacher can bring that to light. This is what's being said. Yeah. But here's another thing to me is that possibly over the pastor, this is one of the most perverted offices, possibly. I, they're close. Because we have this incessant need in Christianity to prove we are right about everything. Yeah. No, we are right. It is, it is almost impossible for us to engage anybody that has any narrative about spirituality other than ours. You know, like I talked to a guy, a Mormon, for about an hour at the pinnacle. And when we left, he was still a Mormon and I was still a Christian. He did, I didn't change how he believed. He didn't change how I believed. But I loved the guy. He was, he was polite. God, he was nice, man. And we just shared back and forth. It was a pleasant conversation. You know, and I didn't feel any need to prove to him I'm right. I just said, you know, this is my experience with my father based upon what the word of God says as well. And, you know, we talked, we throw scripture around for a minute, talked about how we look, and he would even say, well, you know, you've got a good point there. And there's a few points he may have said, well, you know, I can see that. I didn't agree with it, but I was polite. So, well, I could see that, but but we have this incessant need to be right, and the teacher equips us to be right. 
you know. And let me tell you, this is what happens when, you, when your church is void of signs and wonders. Because I promise you, when a healing manifests, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. You don't have to be right. So since we can't manifest the kingdom, we have to have intellect. Because we have to convince the person intellectually that we are right. No, you need Jesus because you are a sinner and you've broken the commands of God and you are going to end up in hell. Okay? All of that may be true. But if you lay hands on them or if they sense the presence of their father settle in on them as you're talking, you don't have to prove nothing. You don't even have to be right. So I think that that's another, that's another, you know, I've said, listen, I've said some stupid stuff out of evangelizing. And I've left them and thought, why, that was a, why did I, that was stupid. You know, you get nervous or something, you just like a bumbling idiot out there. You know, I've done that. I'm thinking, how did you get to them anything with me in the way? <laughs> but somehow they... Father touched them in spite of my ignorance. So, you know, if you can, if you can operate in the presence and manifest the kingdom, I mean, you don't have to prove you're right. And that's not your responsibility anyway. You know, we should always be, Paul said, you always have to be ready to, to give an argument. And people don't understand argument. It doesn't mean that you're arguing. It just means you present, this is how I believe and why I believe this way. And that should come from experience. And let me tell you something, too. If your greatest experience was five years ago, if your testimony that you use every day, if the experience that you're using was five or six years ago, that might might ought to concern us. Because this is an everyday experience. We should be able to tell people what happened in our life, you know, yesterday. What did Father do that was just crazy yesterday? How did he communicate something to us yesterday? So, you know, I hear people say, well, I give my testimony, and I, I get that. I get that. In certain settings, they're wanting to hear how you got free of something. But our testimony should be now. What did God do yesterday, today in my life? So um, I think that's one reason the teacher is, is kind of out of whack. Yeah, just to... A couple more thoughts about teachers. Number one, they move with authority when they teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So I think a true faithful teacher will have definitely an authority in what he teaches uh, and an authority for impartation to make it real in your life. Like this, I hate hearing a good sermon, but you don't give me keys to make it real in my life. So let me give you a Corvette outside and say, hey, those of you brand new Corvette, that I got the keys. True teachers will not only give you an insight into a subject, they're going to give you keys that make that subject applicable in your life. That's one of the worst things we can ever do in this house is, is to teach a thought without giving practical keys to make the subject you heard real in your life. Shut up. Time's up. I'm going to take that another second. One more thought, and I will finish. But they correct error and truth using the Word of God. And here's what I mean by this. Sometimes you have a subject that's part truth, part false. Sometimes a teacher actually has to tear down an entire subject 
to rebuild it. So that's a true teacher as well. He can actually take a subject that's totally biblical, but it's been taught totally wrong, and he can tear it down through grace and wisdom and then give it back to you. So it's biblically sound. If you want to add to that. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you've got to have that office in the church because sometimes the apostle does a pitiful job communicating the vision that he's seeing. You know, it's hard for me to communicate what I see um, sometimes. And sometimes I try and I can feel that it's, it's messy. And I think a teacher could, whether it be a, a Sunday school class or, or a home group or even from the pulpit, clean, a teacher can clean that. I guess it's, it's kind of a vague way of saying it, but a teacher can clean that up. They can say, this is, this is what he meant. <laughs> Let me tell you what he meant to say. <laughs> it's kind of one of them deals. You know what I'm saying? You see how none of these work without the other. And Christ did that on purpose. I really believe that. Because he was supposed to be getting the credit. 